Peace, grace, this is Pastor Colton Lott from First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, El Reno. We have the privilege of building Christian community in El Reno for the world. And so if you care about building Christian community or El Reno or the world, we're glad you're listening to this podcast. If you want to help contribute to the gospel work of this congregation, please visit our website, fcclreno.org, and go to the Give Online tab. And now, here's the sermon for the week. Good morning, disciples in El Reno. My name is Colton. For those of you who may not know me, I serve as one of the ministers here. I'm recording this while with the Bethany Fellows, a cohort of young, early career pastors, where I am finding community and solitude, uh, conversations and stillness, and hope to come back to you rest and renewed. While you're watching this, I'm actually a little on a vacation with a few friends for a few days in time of celebration and in delight. Thanks to the miracle of technology, I'm able to be present with you while physically absent in this strange way. And also in this strange way, I am somewhat similar to John of Patmos, who wrote Revelation as a letter to the seven churches in Asia, bearing his presence while physically absent from them on Patmos, by which I mean exiled on Patmos, as he was likely being held there by Roman officials, unsure of what to do with his life. As John writes his Christian apocalyptic prophecy, many have speculated that Revelation must be a a secret code, concealing his message from outsiders, especially adversaries, particularly Romans. Until recently, I might have described the fantastical images in much the same way, uh, a secret code. But that's not what John of Patmos is doing. Yes, there are parts of his vision that are obscure but direct signs. But John tells us when that happens. He breaks the illusion that there is any secret knowledge required. For example, this happens in chapter 1, where the Son of Man tells John that the seven stars in his right hand of the seven are the seven angels of the seven churches, and that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Or, in the infamous case of the name or the number of the second beast in chapter 13, John breaks the fourth wall and addresses his first audience readers directly. He alerts them that there is a number puzzle. He says, this calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast. But it is the number of a person. Its number is 666 or 616, as some texts preserve. This calculation is based on a system where letters are also numbers, like Roman numerals, and so words also have a numerical value, the arithmetic of which almost certainly spells out Nero Caesar, reflecting a widespread fear and belief that the Roman emperor who had so sharply persecuted Christians, had not died by suicide as reported, but fled to the east to regain power, 
rebuild an army, and was going to return to conquer and rule with an even sharper sword. But again, while Revelation has these uh, one-to-one signs, the little concealment John offers is immediately clarified. John of Patmos isn't writing out a code like the Zodiac Killer or writing a letter which needs an Ovaltine little orphan Annie decoder ring. So why does he write this way? Why is this text so full of imagery and so confusing? The answer, I believe, is for much of the same reason that we write in poetry today. There are parts of life and reality and ultimate reality that are too real to put into common prose. Truth of this kind requires something more abstract, which despite seeming fuzzier, actually gets the reader and the listener closer to the truth. John's vision of God bringing creation to an end and to a new beginning is impossible to directly describe. If you read Revelation, and I suggest that you do sometime, note how many times he uses the word like. He's almost always using a simile, making a metaphor, trying to provoke a sensory experience for his readers and listeners by his very words. John's vision is not a a play-by-play to decipher. It's art, which is intended to provoke truth by knowledge, but also, especially, maybe more importantly, by feeling. Like good music, we don't just understand Revelation, but we are intended to experience it. His writing gives us a mental image to view, this image of God's overwhelming, everlasting victory. John's linear isn't John's vision isn't linear but it symbolically tells the same message of good news over and over and over again. Much like a kaleidoscope, Revelation helps us to see this big, impossible, unbelievable, too-good-to-be-true truth in many colors, many shapes, from many angles. To be blunt, I don't believe that John is telling us how it's all going to happen, nearly as much as he is describing what will happen. And he does so in such a way that his first audience could experience resurrection while listening to these words. Maybe the same could be true of us. And what John of Patmos knows will happen is that the same God who was and is It's the same God who will come and rescue God's followers. So those followers can be bold because God will not abandon them, will not give them up, will not forsake them. With his trippy images, John tells us over and over and over again, our God has got this. Can you feel it?
Now hear these words from Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? And I said to them, Sir, you are the one who knows. And then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason they are before the throne of God, and worshipped him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on a throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. No sun will strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you to hear your words. Speak to us. Open our ears and our hearts. Open our minds together what you have called for each of us to hear today. Use me as a vessel of your instrument and in spite of my shortcomings. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So Revelations is an intriguing book of the Bible. Okay, I'm going to mess with this. And someone, everyone it seems, has a definite opinion on this book. It's one of those love it or hate it kind of things. Maybe you love this book like Eli does. It's his favorite book. He's all excited about the series. Or maybe you're frightened by it because what I just said was crazy. And you would rather just avoid it like the plagues from Exodus. But I'm here to tell you that it has wisdom and guidance for us today. This particular passage of scripture that we're going to focus on is one that's used over and over again. If anybody's going to pull something from Revelations, it's probably from this chapter right here. So we're going to really talk about it in depth. But before we get into the scriptures that we're talking about, I want to give us a little prefix. In chapter 4 of 7, it talks about 144,000, which is 12,000 from every tribe of Israel. And sometimes these numbers are used, and that says that there's, that's the only amount of people are going to get to heaven. But I believe our heaven is big enough, and our God is big enough, that, that he's not going to limit it. I think he's just using it to give us an ideal of the multitude of people that will be there when we get to heaven. It's also just the beginning of the talk of the great mag- multitude that's talked about in verse 9. So we're going to start right there. We've heard that the great multitude discuss, but who really is it? The great multitude are those that have remained faithful to God throughout the generations. Our faith that has not wavered is what will be with us to the end of this life and on into eternity. So I want to stop for just a moment and think about what it will be like 
when all believers are united and from every nation, from every tribe, every people, and every language, and all are singing praises to our God. I had a glimpse of what I think this could maybe be like about 15 years ago when we were at Acquire the Fire, a huge convention in Indianapolis. And we were there with, I don't know, 10, 20,000 people, and we were all singing He Reigns. We were being led by Third Day, and it was a beautiful moment. But more than just singing, we were there worshiping our Creator. And we sang, and we sang, and we sang. The band walked off the stage, and we didn't even miss them. I can still hear that in my head, and I think that's just a foretaste of what is being talked about right here, where the multitude will be singing praises to our Creator. But we will all be reunited one day. But right now, the bad news is we are right here in this time and this place. We're not yet in heaven where we're all singing those praises. And in the book of Revelation, we see the struggle, the fight, the war between good and evil. And as Christians, we have one weapon for this battle, and it is the word of God. But that one weapon is a mighty weapon. We have the struggle, have struggled throughout history, but right here in Revelations is the climax of that struggle. The good news is, I'm going to go ahead and give you the spoiler, God wins. Love wins in the end. That's the good news. Does Revelation tell us when Jesus will come back? You know, is it going to be September the 25th of 2025? No, it doesn't tell us those things. But it does tell us that he's going to be coming back and we are all going to be reunited with him. And it does tell us that the faithful will overcome the tribulation. This passage reminds us that salvation comes from God. There's nothing that we can do to earn it or work to achieve it. The angels, the elders, and the four creatures' response to the salvation was worship. And they, in their worship, praised God and were reminded of the six characteristics of God that they talk about here. Praise, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, strength. All of these words give us a picture of who God is. These characteristics are what we can build our faith on. God is never changing. These characteristics are what make God different from anybody else. Because some days you don't even know what our hair color might be, right? But God is never changing. God always is the same, and we can count on that. The great tribulation that is talked about here is in verse 14 of chapter 7. And it can be explained in several ways. Some believe that it refers to the suffering of believers through the ages. And others believe that there is a specific time of the intense tribulation yet to come. Either way, believers come through it because of their faith in God is kept. God washes away all of our sins and then we become white as snow. That is hard to accept this precious gift of redemption that God provides us because of his great love for us. It is freely given to all that have, all we have to do is accept and believe. That's the good news. It's really easy, you all. And God is extending that gift to us. We just have to accept it. The rest of the chapter is a reminder of what God will do. God will conquer hunger and thirst. 
He will provide protection, and the lamb will be our shepherd. He will guide us to the living water, and he will wipe away our tears. Just as our earthly parent wipes our tears when we are in pain, our Heavenly Father does the same for us. This is the peace that we are all searching for and that only God can provide. He is the great shepherd who will protect and love his sheep. This part of chapter 7 of Revelation tells us what we will see when we are reunited with God in heaven. It doesn't sugarcoat the realization of the journey will not be easy always and that we will struggle just like the caterpillar and the changes into the chrysalis and the butterfly has to struggle out. But we do know that in the end, the destination and the reward will be received. We as Christians proclaim hope in the living God whose great love is revealed in the humble obedience of Jesus. And it draws us to see God's goodness in the face of overwhelming contradictory evidence. So chapter 7 talks a lot about struggle. And we all have struggles. Some are more difficult than others. Some struggles are for a season and some are for a lifetime. But in the end, the struggles will come to an end. And I want to tell you right now that every person here is an overcomer. This is great news. And you might think, oh, Tara, I really am not an overcomer. But I want to let you know, and I'm going to argue with you, that you are. You are here this morning, which means that you fought the urge to stay in bed or go do something else, and you came to church. Maybe you had some help making that decision, like your partner or your parent or maybe even your child, but you found your way to this place and this time. So you indeed are an overcomer. Many of you have fought tougher battles, perhaps with sickness like cancer or depression or other physical ailments. No matter what you have faced or are facing, be assured that God is with you. Life is not fair, but Jesus is not finished, and he wants to do amazing things through you. I want to talk about a struggle that has been all over the news the past week. Naomi Judd and her struggle with mental illness, more specifically anxiety and depression. I grew up listening to the Judds. The mother-daughter duo was a fixture for many of us in the 80s and 90s country music fans. There are some easy melodies that we could all join our voices to, whether it was singing Mama, He's Crazy, and He's Crazy Over Me, or Grandpa, or even songs with a little more fun like Have Mercy or Girls' Night Out. I can hear any of these songs and go into my own private concerts where, of course, I am the star. Yep. Sorry, but I can. Any moment. But behind those songs that touch so many of us, Naomi and Winona had their own struggles. Whether it was just the tension of relationships between Naomi and Winona, or as mother and daughter, which is always can be difficult, or the personal darkness that Naomi struggled with and openly shared about, and even wrote a book about called River of Time, My Descent into Depression, and How I Emerged with Hope. Naomi is an example of someone who had fame and fortune. She had it all. And she still struggled to get out of bed or get dressed for years. When we have struggles, we often think that if we had fill in the blank, it would help us get over it. 
We think that if we have more money or more time or better health or better relationships, that everything would be better. And maybe it would or maybe it wouldn't. But just because we are Christians doesn't mean that we won't have struggles. God never said that life here on earth was going to be easy. But he did promise that he would be with us through the struggles and would walk with us till the end. And he does. Struggling has, suffering has always been a part of the Christian story. And we are not immune. However, there is only part of the story and it's never the end. Suffering becomes victorious, and victory is the wind. And we as Christians are all going to be victorious. I know this is countercultural, where the belief of the one that wins with the most toys, or the one with the most money and the biggest house wins, or the one with the most power wins. But I want to tell you the good news is the victory in the Christian life comes in death. Dying and rising in Christ, we become victors. We have to learn to let go of our definition of victory and our need to control of all the circumstances of our life, whatever ordeals we are facing, and some of the preparation will be easy and some will be not. We need to look at the reality and the illusion between what God has promised and what God has not. We need to accept that our lives will not be free from suffering, but trust that in God we will find strength and courage and comfort enough to sustain us until that time when we become victors over death. Our God is a God of extravagant love. Perhaps you have experienced that from your mother or a mother figure in your life, but even if you haven't, there is a God that is waiting with open arms to share that love with you. The Lamb and the Good Shepherd calls us to be witness of love in the world. Naomi Judd has been victorious and through death, she has been united with her creator and found peace that she longed for. She was always an example of love and compassion. The Judd's song, Love Can Build a Bridge, is another example of what it will be like when we are all joined in heaven and are united in worship. So we're going to listen to these words and imagine all of God's children singing them together. And I invite you to sing in the chorus and we'll have our own private concerts.